Good morning, everyone. If you have a Bible, open to 2 Samuel chapter 3 as we continue our study through this amazing book. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, you want to turn over to page 238. 2 Samuel chapter 3 or page 238. Jude, join me in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather with your people. We thank you that we live in a country where we do not fear persecution for gathering, singing your praise, opening your word. We recognize, Lord, that is a a rare moment in time, a rare moment in history where your people, even today, can gather with freedom without fear of governments or populations or, or persecution. Help us to remember our brothers and sisters in the persecuted church all over the world, Lord. Help us to not, to, to not diminish the freedom and privilege and the responsibility that gives to us. Father, we thank you for the church has been gathering, the local church has been gathering around the globe for 24 hours now, and we get to join in that chorus of praise and adoration to you. Lord, we're grateful that we are not the only church in, by far that you are using. And so, Lord, we just want to pray for our brothers and sisters at, at King's Cross Church in Ladera Ranch, Lord, our brothers and sisters down at Faith Bible Church in Laguna Niguel, Tribuco Canyon Church out in the canyon, Lord, uh, Compass Church in Lisa Viejo, Calvary Chapels that are all over the place. We ask, Lord, that you would keep these congregations in your word, keep them pure, keep them fighting against sin and pursuing holiness. Lord, we pray for the leadership, Lord, that there would be men who are broken over the sin in their own heart and the sin of their people, men who are crying out for your spirit to fall and work in the lives of our church. May we be a people, as Martin Luther said in his very first theses of the 95, that we would recognize all of life as repentance and faith. And may we be transformed such that people would see that there is something in the gospel. It is not because of us, as the psalmist says in Psalm 115, it is not to us, O Lord, but to your name bring glory. And we pray, Father, whatever role we can play in bringing glory to your name, it would be much more than we ever deserve. And so thank you for saving us. Uh, As Paul says, wretched sinners though we are, we have a greater Savior. And we gather and thank uh, you, Father, in his name. Amen. Well, friends, we've been looking at the uh, transition of the kingdom of Israel from the house of Saul to the house of David for the last couple of weeks. Uh, And that transition really won't be complete until chapter 5, which means this morning we're looking at that transition. And again, next week we'll be looking at that transition in chapter 4. Now, you might be sitting and thinking, wow, four weeks on the transition of the kingdom from Saul to David, that seems a bit overkill, doesn't it? But when you think about in these three chapters, it's eight years of time. We're actually not talking about a lot of what's going on there. Uh, there there's so many more details we could explore that are fascinating, but... Um, the reason I'm hesitating is if I, can't stay, I can't not think about the news and current events, what just took place yesterday now that Israel and Hamas are at war. And it's interesting. I'm not going to go into political expose of that. There's enough of that online if you want it. Uh, if you want to understand the current conflict, and this is the first time Israel's actually declared war. I mean, they've always had skirmishes. You know, if you know anything about their history, they're always throwing rockets at each other and all that kind of thing. But yesterday it was full-blown warfare, and it's very tragic To even understand modern events, and the reason I share that is, you you have to understand the world of the Bible. You cannot understand fully the battle between Hamas and Israel right now unless you understand the, the very things we've actually been studying together 
right? So what I mean is that about 4,000, 4,500 years ago, Genesis 12, 15, 17, God promises to Abraham, I will give you the land of Canaan, and this is the land you will possess, which is now modern-day Israel, a little bit of Egypt, Jordan on the side, top uh, Lebanon. But by and large, this is the land you're going to get. And as you know from a couple weeks ago, the only land Abraham himself actually possessed was a real small portion of that. It was Hebron, right? Um, it isn't actually until about a thousand years later to the very events we've been studying where Saul sets up the kingdom, the, the kingdom of Israel, that the people of Israel, the Israelites, actually can claim a nation state that here we are 3,500 years after the fact and it's still being fought over. The reason Israel it has a sense of national identity as Israel comes right from here, friends. This is where it starts. Well, not actually in 2 Samuel. It actually starts in 1 Samuel, but you get my point. And so all that to say is that if, if you kind of think, hey, how is the Bible relevant to us or the Old Testament? Shouldn't we just be in the new? Well, brother or sister, I mean, I just looked on the news and went, yep, here's why the, the Bible is still relevant for our day and age today. Now, there's layers of the political, all these other issues going on, and, and I'm tempted to jump into the history of it because it is fascinating. But like I said, go online for that. I want us to continue our study of this amazing book. Well, so um, where, where, that was none of my notes. Where am I now? The point is, like I said a couple of weeks ago, history is messy and it's complex. And that's because people are messy and complex as well. As, as we see happening now, as we learn from 3,500 years ago in our study, divided allegiances, they have consequences. Divided allegiances have consequences. And the more we study the Bible, and the more I look around the modern world, and again, just yesterday, what happened, I see we're the same. We are the same from 3,500 years ago to today because the human heart remains the same. More importantly, thankfully so, the God of Israel remains the same. Now, one myth I hope that is, become, that is being dispelled in your mind in our short study of 2 Samuel um, and if you've been at Christ Community and you've been through an Old Testament study, I hope that's already been dispelled, is the idea that the Old Testament, the message of the Old Testament is radically different than the message of the New Testament. There are those who mistakenly teach and those who mistakenly believe that the Old Testament, man, it's about works and law, and the New Testament's all about grace and faith. That distinction is entirely false. It's entirely false. It's not as if God had plan A and that did not work out, so he called an audible at halftime and brought in plan B in the New Testament. Not at all. As we have seen in the last three, four weeks, there are gospel threads woven all throughout 2 Samuel. There, it's all over the place. And that's because the human need has not changed. We need rescue. Not just from the chaos of the world around us, not just from the evils that are purported and brought to us, but we need rescue from ourselves more than anything. We have seen in 2 Samuel people being confronted by God's anointed king and they reject him. People following after false kings and allowing, div allowing divided loyalties to bring even more chaos and confusion into their lives. People today are no different than they were 3,500 years ago. The human heart needs to change. 
I mean, at a core level. And the only thing that can do that, friends, it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So it makes perfect sense why when you look at the Old Testament, you're going to see those gospel threads everywhere because it's the same message that has to change our hearts. We will see the same thing in 2 Samuel chapter 3. Now, as the transition of the kingdom kingdom continues, what we're going to see is that God is going to bring about his plan despite and through human efforts, reminding us that God's plan, first and foremost, is a message of grace, not our performance and obedience necessarily, but it is all by grace. Now, to guide us through this, I'm going to give us two phrases. And so those two large phrases are, uh, number one, stronger and stronger, weaker and weaker. And then number two, this, this theme I want to tease out that I just call despite and through. It'll make sense as we're going through our text this morning. As, and what we're going to learn as we do that is a lesson in Old Testament theology. That, that's kind of my goal. So let's take a look at it. Stronger and stronger, weaker and weaker. That comes right out of our text, chapter 3, verse 1. There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, and David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. This obviously is a commentary on all that's taking place in this civil war. And if you were here last week, you realize that the narrator is getting a lot of traction out of that one verse because that one verse kind of reoriented, recontextualized the probably the 20 verses before that of basically this is what a world of two kings is going to look like, yet there's hope in spite of that. But this verse also serves as the springboard of everything that's coming after showing that God's anointed is only going to get stronger and those who oppose him, they're only going to get weaker. Now, throughout this chapter, and I do hope you read it ahead of time. It is a long chapter, so I'm not going to read the whole thing. It's 40 verses. Throughout this chapter, there are three particular ways that the narrator is showing us David is getting stronger. And the first we see that is starting in verse 2 to verse 5. Um, basically, it is a, uh, it's three, four verses of David's boys. I mean, David's got six sons. I mean, look at this brood. I don't even think the Lefevers have six guys, six boys. You guys, I mean, I mean, David has a lot of kids. Now you're thinking, why is that important? Who cares how many boys David's got? Well, keep in mind, the narrator's trying to show the strength of David. And when you're in a monarchical system, you want to show that the throne is secure. And no better way to show that the throne is secure than to what? Show that there's a successor. Not only does David have a successor to the throne, he's got six of these lined up. There is nothing going to happen to this king's dynasty because he is set to go. Six sons. David's throne is secure. So as soon as he says David's getting stronger, he shows how that's true. His throne is secure. The second way the narrator shows us David's strength is the bulk of the chapter from verse 6 to 21. David, if we, if we can say David is strong biologically because of his six boys, he's also stronger now, um, oh, politi- politically goes with biological, well, he's stronger militarily, and what I mean by that is Abner is now defecting, Abner's the general of the northern armies, he is defecting over to join David, and as he does so, he's going to bring all ten northern tribes and their allegiance and give them to David. Look at verse 17. And Abner conferred with the elders of Israel, saying, 
For some time past, you've been seeking David as king over you. Now then, bring it about. For the Lord has promised David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. Abner also spoke to Benjamin, and then Abner went to tell David at Hebron all that Israel and the whole house of Benjamin thought good to do. Now, this, this mention of Benjamin is not this just guy that Abner's talking to named Benjamin, right? He's referring to one of the tribes. The question is, why does, why does the narrator highlight, he's talking to, Abner's talking to the elders of the northern tribes, why does he highlight Benjamin? It's because Benjamin is the tribe Saul came from. And so by the narrator including this, that even Benjamin was on board, the narrator's telling the audience, look, the northern tribes, they're in for David. Even the tribe of Benjamin, can you believe it? That's how much unity is starting to happen here, and Abner brings them over. In the process of doing so, Abner also brings David's first wife, the daughter of King Saul, Michal. Right, verse 13 and 14. So this is David speaking to Abner. And David says, good, I'll make a covenant with you. But one thing I require of you, that is, you shall not see my face unless you first bring Michal, Saul's daughter, when you come to see my face. Then David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, give me my wife, Michal, for whom I paid the bridal price of a hundred four skins of the Philistines. So, this is a very politically shrewd and wise thing, and, and symbolically wise thing for David to do, and here's why. Um, especially in, in royalty, king, uh, marriages were not determined principally because you loved one another as much as it was to secure political alliances. So David politically understands that if he can get his wife back, by the way, Michal was his wife, she loved him, 1 Samuel 18 tells us that, uh, but then uh, because of the, the paranoia and jealousy of Saul, he took his, David's wife away, his daughter, and gave her to somebody else. David brings her back, and if he can show that, hey, McCall's still my wife, he's politically binding the northern tribes to him. So it's a very strong political move, symbolically also remember him being the son-in-law was and is the son-in-law of Saul communicates he is the rightful ruler. He can be the one to succeed Saul. So having his first wife brought back to him, I wish I could say that David was pining after Michal, but unfortunately, and we can't get into this, the reality is their, their love for one another did drift apart. We see that a little bit later, but this is mostly a political and symbolic move for David. So, sum up, he's strong. He's got six sons. He's strong militarily, politically, symbolically. All of Israel wants to come behind him. He now has the, the, the daughter of the first king as his wife again. And then third and finally, verses 31 to 39, David grew stronger through his own integrity, his, his grace that he displayed, and grief over Abner's assassination. In other words... It's clear to all Israel that David the king did not want Abner assassinated because what happens in verses 22 to 30 is that as Abner comes to Hebron to seal the, the treaty with David, Joab catches wind that he's defecting. And so he takes advantage of this opportunity and seeks, out, seeks revenge on Abner for killing his brother Azahel in war, in battle. And Joab calls him aside, pulls out a knife, and guts him. 
and Abner dies. You can imagine the northern tribes are upset. They probably think this was David's plan all along to bring our general down there and have him assassinated. But it becomes clear through the memorial that, that like Saul, David had nothing to do with Abner's death and called them a great man, commanded the nation into mourning and fasting, and they saw his grief over a great man of Israel dying, and they were blown away by David. We can look at it here. Go look at verse 35. So David's calling a, a, a fast for the people to mourn over Abner. And then all the people came to persuade David to eat bread while it was yet day. But David swore, saying, God do so to me, and more also, if I taste bread or anything else till the sun goes down. And all the people took notice of it, and it pleased them, as everything that the king did pleased all the people. Verse 37, so all the people and all Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's will to put Abner, the son of Ner, to death. And the king said to his servants, do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? So David is growing stronger and stronger in every conceivable way. And the house of Saul, ruled by Ishbosheth, is becoming weaker and weaker in kind of a mirror opposite way. Now, notice almost the comical juxtaposition that the narrator is setting up between this brood of David in verses 2 through 5, all his six boys, and the fact that verses 6 through 11, Abner and Ishbosheth are arguing over a concubine. I find there's a little bit of humor of that. David's got more boys than he knows what to do with, and Ishbosheth and Abner are arguing over basically a concubine. I think there's some humor there, especially in the verses that kind of come between those. For example, actually right after that, look at verse 6. It tells us uh, something interesting. While there was war between the house of Saul and David, which is almost identical to what verse 1 says, Abner, verse 6, was making himself strong in the house of Saul. So compare those two verses because what you have is this commentary in verse 1 and then four, three or four verses of all of David's sons, and then this other commentary in verse 6, as if to bookend something and to highlight something. Here's the point I'm getting at. How was, how, how was Saul's house being weakened? Verse 6 tells us. By Abner becoming strong. So then the next question is, well, then how is Abner becoming strong? And that's where the accusation of the concubine comes in at verse 7. Ishbosheth says to him, why are you going into my father's concubine? Now, granted, nobody here has ever been accused of that. That's not a common thing we hear. So let me unpack why this is significant. To go into another man's concubine to have sexual relations with her was to exercise your dominance. To show that was once, what once was another man's is now yours that you are in the place of the other man. So then to go into a king's concubine is basically to say, I'm the king. That's what's going on here. And so Abner, whether or not he's actually doing that, Ishbosheth is saying, you are not the king. Now, we see this pattern in the book of Samuel, in 2 Samuel chapter 16, verse 21, when Absalom revolts against his father David, one of the first things he does is he puts a tent on top of the king's palace in all the sight of Israel, and he basically goes into every one of the king's concubines. We see the same thing in 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 22, when Adon Adonijah asks for the former concubine of the king, Solomon, he has him executed. 
It's not because of his overreaction. It's because Solomon understands very well what Adonijah is doing. He's trying to usurp his authority. Now, again, whether or not Abner was with Rizpah, which is the concubine in question in verse 7, is never actually answered. And theologians and historians are split on whether or not this is actually taking place. Verse 8 alludes to the fact that that's probably what wasn't what's going on. Remember, verse 8, Abner says to, to uh, Ishbosheth, why, in a sense, why would, you accuse, why, why would you accuse me of this? I have done nothing but shown steadfast love to you and your father's house and your family. Right? So that, that's um, Abner's response to Ishbosheth. But probably why the narrator puts this in here is more to show us that Ishbosheth, he really is his, his father's son. In other words, the narrator is taking this opportunity to show the paranoia of Ishbosheth is very much like the paranoia of his father, Saul. Remember, Saul was paranoid about David, threw a spear at him a few times. And his paranoia towards David couldn't just be contained to David. It's soon towards the end of his kingdom. He was paranoid about everybody. If you're a note taker, write down 1 Samuel 22, 7 and 8. He not only is paranoid about David, but like as all paranoia tends to do, it's about everyone around him. And the narrator saying, like father, like son. Ishbosheth, in some ways, is an appropriate successor to Saul. Paranoid and deluded. And that's what we see here in the accusation. In either case, whether or not Abner was with Rizpah, we do not know. The accusation infuriates Abner. He's a proud man, after all. And that's when he decides to defect. What's interesting is three times in verses 21 to 23, as soon as Abner decides to defect, the narrator writes, and Abner went away in peace, and he went away in peace, and he went away in peace. Peace, peace, peace. As long last, there might be peace here. Not the way we would have wanted it, but there might be peace. And then you get verse 27, Joab guts Abner. You're like, oh, come on. Can you guys get it together? Just when things were coming together like that, and now another assassination. Kind of how life is sometimes. Just when you think things may work out, we get involved, and it all goes sideways. But what's interesting is, because of Joab's actions of assassinating Abner in cold blood, David's righteousness is now seen by all the tribes of Israel. And you note in verses 31 to 39, seven times, a phrase that, that appears as rapid fire, all the people. All the people, all the people. You never saw that phrase before because why? Well, you had the people up in the north and you had the people in the south, but they never saw themselves as the people. And almost to press the point in verse 37, the narrator says, and all the people, all Israel, saw David and were pleased. As if the narrator showing there's unity happening now in the kingdom of God. So let me sum that up because there's a lot of stuff happening there. Ishbosheth in Saul-like fashion, accuses and turns on Abner. Abner defects to David. David accepts him. Joab kills Abner in revenge. David grieves Abner and curses Joab. They hold a memorial service, and then all Israel sees in David what we all knew from chapter 1, but they didn't see, that this is not the king you'd expect. He's not petty and paranoid like Ishbosheth or Saul. This king is just. And he is compassionate, and it brings the people together because they've never seen this. 
So as the reader now, I mean, we have different intentions and different expectations of the text than the original readers, but as the readers, we think about this, so one of the questions I ask is, so again, history's messy and complex, people are complicated. Who kind of gets the credit for bringing the kingdom together? The, the easy answer would be, well, David, right? But is it Ishbosheth for pushing Abner to defect? Is it Abner for helping to bring all the northern tribes to change their minds regarding David? Or is it Joab for killing Abner, giving David the platform for everyone to see the righteous man that he is? Or is it David for being the righteous man in the first place? Is it all of them or none of them? Is it just one of them? The answer, I'm seeing you guys are actually giving me numbers. One, two, it's three, it's two, it's one. Yes. Yes. All of them, none of them, any one of them. My wife says, that she, I drive her insane when I answer questions like that. But it's yes. Again, real history is messy and people are complicated. Let me add another thought to that. God is faithful, though. God is good, and he is always at work bringing about his purposes. And this highlights my second point. This idea, despite and through, in one sense, that, that could be a good way to study the Old Testament. And what I mean by that, especially here in our context, it is clear through the ups and downs, the confusion, the chaos, the paranoia, the accusations, the betrayals, the deceit, and the subterfuge, God is still working his plan and purposes even when people do things their way, often with violence and deceit. But God is always working his plan. It's undeniable. And here's my point, using that theme. God works despite tragic human efforts, and God even works through tragic human efforts. God's purposes and plans, like the kingdom here in 2 Samuel, will be accomplished despite and through what these individuals do. And so as I read the Old Testament and I see that kind of theme coming through so often, friends, what that means to me, what I think that could mean to us, is that God's plans and purposes in and for your life will be accomplished despite and through what you do as well. And I do hope that is a comfort to you. I do hope that comforts you knowing that despite and even through me, God's plans will prevail. I think that's important for us because sometimes we can crash in the ditch of thinking it all depends on you, your obedience, your performance, your faithfulness, your consistency, your response. We think that God's working and blessing in our lives is proportionate to our performance. I think if we ask most people, Christian or not, they would think that's what Christianity is about. You live a good moral life, and in return, you get the life you most want. That's how this works. On the other hand, we might crash in the ditch of thinking that, hey, it doesn't matter what we do, right? And maybe you have a high view of God's sovereignty or whatever it might be. You, you figure, well, God's going to do whatever it is he's going to do, so what does it matter what I do? Or maybe your view of God's sovereignty has a negative aspect to it, and you think, well, God's just totally unconcerned about you and I in the details. There are so many things, after all, for him to worry about. Yeah, he might love me, because he has to, because he's God, but he doesn't like me, so why does it bother how invested I am? 
Those are one of the two ditches we can crash in. But what we see here, it's not just despite what these people do that God works, nor is it always through what these people do that God works, but it's both despite and through us that he will accomplish his good purposes. In other words, friends, what you do does matter. How you choose to live will have an impact for good or bad, but yet at the same time as we read Scripture, it's also true that you cannot outmaneuver God one way or the other. It's, 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 in some sense, it's like he takes account of all the possible variables. He knows how things are going to play out, and he's going to make sure his plans work. He will be glorified despite your weakness. He will be glorified through your strength because God works despite and through us. And for me, one of the classic, as I kind of started thinking about it, the classic story of that, one of the best examples of that is the story of Joseph from the book of Genesis, Right? His brothers sold him into slavery, thrown into prison, forgotten, and left for dead. Yet years later, he stands as the second most powerful man in Egypt. And when confronted by his brothers, what does he say to them? In Genesis 50, verse 12, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Despite and through what people did, God had a plan that was not going to be thwarted. So let's, let's bring some of these threads from 2 Samuel 3 together. Now, if you've been here through our study in 2 Samuel or any of our Old Testament studies, you should know by now how to read your Old Testament. And that is, you do not merely look at the individuals of, of the Old Testament, but you look through the individuals of the Old Testament. What do I mean by that? When you just look at the individuals of the Old Testament, which many people do, what you tend to reduce the, Christian, the gospel to is kind of behaviorism, and you make it all about me, because what we do is, I look at David, I want to be like David. I look at Joab, I don't want to be like Joab, and that's how I make the calculations. And again, when you do that, and to a certain degree, yeah, it's better to be like David than Joab in the story, so don't mishear me. What I'm saying, though, is if that's the primary way you look at the Old Testament, You've made it all about do's and don'ts, and it's all about you, right? And, and which is why a lot of times we get to start thinking about Christianity. It, it is all about me. That, that's where it comes from. So when I say you need to look through the characters, the individuals, what I mean to say is that all the individuals, well, I don't say all. This is where my more professorial minds kind of, I want to be nuanced. I'm saying that when you look at the individuals of the Old Testament, look through them because oftentimes individuals, Events, institutions. We talked last week about even motifs, freedom and slavery, for example. They are all gospel threads helping us to realize as I look through these, what is the gospel motif of freedom and slavery that I'm seeing here in this passage in Exodus, for example, because that's going to remind me to look for God's salvation ultimately found in Christ. And the picture I get is it's not about me necessarily, but look what God is doing to deliver his people according to his promises. And when you learn to look at the Bible that way, every time you look at the, New Testament, or the Old Testament, you see the threat of God's salvation, what he's doing to bless his people because he is a sovereign and good and powerful God that will not be stopped. And that's all the way through the Bible. It becomes about him and being blown away at who he is rather than proud of who you are or feeling self-loathing about who you are. 
And so that's what we kind of want to do a little bit right now with some of these main individuals who have been so part of the story for the last couple weeks. So Abner, does that make sense? You guys on board? Okay. Uh, Abner. And, and, and here's the thing, right? <laughs> if you, it's been a while probably since you've read 1 Samuel or 2 Samuel. You should have mixed feelings about some of the things I'm saying because you're like, no, Abner, Abner, he's my boy. He was like there. He's like the general in the armies of the people of God. He's, he's one of us. And he is this interesting mix, isn't he, of self-sacrificial loyalty. We saw that in verse 8. Hey, man, I love your family. I love your father. I give everything for the kingdom of Saul. And yet he's also this mixture of self-interested power and hunger. And, and as we talked about a few weeks ago, his pride, his thirst for hunger, or maybe even his relationships with family blinded him. And even though he knew David was God's anointed, he opposed David, not just in opposition to David, but in opposition to God himself. You see, Abner calculated that his interests lay more with Ishbosheth. And I think sometimes we're tempted to do the same. That, that our interests lie more with false kings who will give us what we more immediately want than denying myself and living the crucified life of Christ. But when the calculations changed for Abner, he switched sides, which is exactly what happened in verse 7, 8, and 9. Now listen to what he says to David in verse 12 when he, actually, when he decides to defect. And Abner sent messengers to David on his behalf saying, To whom does the land belong? At first I thought Abner was kind of sucking up to David a little bit, like, you're the king, aren't you? But then I realized that doesn't fit his profile. So to whom does the land belong? Make your covenant with me, and behold, my hand shall be with you to bring over all Israel to you. Here's my point. Even as he's defecting, he's talking to the king, hey, who's the land belong to? Me. Abner's implying, even in my weakness, I'm the kingmaker. And I can choose who has Israel follow them. You make a covenant with me, and you'll be doing all right. At the end of the day, this guy is nothing more than a warlord. That's Abner. What about Joab? He, he's, he clearly, I mean, he's in the story. He's, he's David's general. He must be a great guy. But Joab's pretty much the same as Abner. On the one hand, he's really committed to David. I mean, he really gives of himself for David. He's a, he's a general among God's people. But he's equally committed to his own interests, as our study will continue to reveal. And Joab's hostility to Abner is both political and personal. Of course, he blames Abner for the death of Azahel, his brother, who, in fairness, Ab uh, Abner killed him in warfare. Abner told him, stop pursuing me. I don't want to kill you. And Azahel kept coming, and Abner killed him. So it's a personal thing for Joab, but also Joab's smart enough to know if, if Abner defects, he's going to supersede me as the general of David's armies, and nobody's going to take my job. And so Joab calls him aside, calls him behind the, kings, the, the, the gates of the city, pulls out a knife, and guts him. In the end, Joab is nothing more than a warlord like Abner. Well, what about David? I mean, David is the righteous king, innocent of both Saul's death and Abner's assassination. David does not engage in deceit, subterfuge, but faithfully trusts in God and his plan for his people. All true. Hard stop. And yet, did you notice 
David does not deal with the strong man, Joab, the way he should. I mean, we've seen David execute some quick justice. He sees things clearly. But he lets Joab get away with basically assassinating somebody. And one wonders, did this plant the seed? David's some sense of weakness to letting Absalom, Sheba, and Adonijah revolt and rebel against him. Also, as Clay prayed during our, our pastoral prayer, did you notice when the, there's a little bit of foreboding in David's brood of young men? Six sons. But if you read ahead, did you notice all six sons from six different mothers? That's a train wreck of epic proportions just waiting to take place if David's not careful. I mean, I, I, I've, got my, I've, got a, I've got a wife who loves her sons, and there's a little bit of tiger mom there evidentially sometimes, but can you imagine six of these wanting their son to be on the throne? If David's not careful, that's going to come back and destroy him. I'm not going to get into the polygamy thing, but that was part of the problem. He, de- he defied God's design of marriage and had all these multiple wives. And according to 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 6, David wasn't careful. And as a result, these are all his children, by the way, all of them, Amnon would rape his half-sister Tamar, 2 Samuel 13. Amnon, in turn, will be murdered by his half-brother Absalom. Absalom will usurp the throne against his father, David, while Adonijah will proclaim himself king instead of Solomon and eventually himself get executed by Solomon, all because David sins against the Lord because he got too comfortable being the king. That's what 2 Samuel 11 tells us. Like so many of us, struggle was not David's downfall. It was success. He fell asleep at the wheel. And that's going to be a fascinating chapter when we study it. In the end... David's just another man like you or I. Friends, if you're looking for the good guys in the Bible, you're going to be disappointed. <laughs> if, you're going to look, if you're looking for the, the moral, upright person in the Bible, you're going to be disappointed. And that's because what Paul says in Romans 3 is so true. And it, it includes the biblical characters that none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless, Paul says. No one does good, not even one. And then he tells us why. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Friends, the only thing worse than fearing everyone like Ishbosheth and Saul, that's fearing no one like Abner and Joab. Few of us are on those extremes. The rest of us, we're all in the confused middle, not knowing who to fear and how, and we're just screwed up. But that is exactly why God has to work despite and through us, because none of us gets it right. Certainly not all the time. Friends, this is exactly why I take comfort in this, in this theme of despite and through that is all over the Old Testament. Being right with God, experiencing his blessings, is not about you or me getting it right, but resting in the fact that Christ did. That Christ got it right. What God is about in our lives is so much bigger than our lives themselves, and we have to learn to rest in that fact. Now, to be clear, 
I am not now condoning the pride of Abner or the wickedness of Joab any more than I'm downplaying the obedience and trust of David. What I am saying is this, that God is so committed to his glory and purposes in your life, he's more committed to that than to allow your actions to either derail them or to be dependent upon them. Hear that. God is invested in you. Yes, true. But he's way more invested than him. And that should help you have comfort. I know in our self-esteem society where everything's about us, you may go, I don't like that. He should be about me. No. Because then you're in a lot of trouble. He's in it for his glory and his name. And so your performance, good or bad, is not as big an issue as you might think. Friends, if I can make an argument from the greater to the lesser, if God can use the greatest wickedness of humanity to bring about his greatest glory, then you focusing on your performance is the wrong emphasis. Look at this from what Peter says in Acts chapter 2. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified by the hands of lawless men. Friends, the cross is the greatest example of God working despite and through us that there ever was. And so if that is true of the cross, of crucifixion, how much more true is that of the way you will perform for the Lord this week? The focus should not be our performance. The focus rightly should be God's grace and his promise to bring about what he says he will do. Friends, the reason we have Old Testament narratives like 2 Samuel chapter 3 is not necessary to say, be like David, don't be like Joab, do this, don't do that. That's not the point. It is for you to say, man, do you see the faithfulness and goodness of God working his plan despite my failure or my strength? Or man, do you see the faithfulness and goodness of God working out his plan through my failure and through my strengths? When we read the Old Testament this way, like David, or more importantly, like the one David points us to, we then learn to trust and rest in the grace of God in the gospel. Friends, are you still living, looking to what you do, good or bad? And I've always said that a, a life that is not lived of joyful response to the cross is always going to be lived out of pride or fear. Proud because I'm living the way I should be living. Fearful because I know I'm not. And, and, and the antidote, people often think, is the other direction. And all they do is crash in another ditch. The response, the way to live the Christian life is not about my performance, but constantly gazing upon his performance. And he did it. Us feasting on the truth of justification by faith alone. In Christ alone. Friends, trust him. Not your behavior, either good or bad. Let him be the Savior. Because that's what it is when we say we're trusting something, right? We're leaning our weight. We're putting our weight onto something. Trust him, his plan, not your performance. Trust him, he's the Savior, not your performance. That's what we see when we look at this convoluted, messed up humanity in the Old Testament. 
is that, man, through it all, God, despite and through us, is working out something far greater than we could ever imagine. Friends, that's what we should be thinking about, resting on that truth. And I said this in first hour. I'll try and do it second hour because I think you're just as smart. Um, especially for those of you who are more theologically minded. You're, you're familiar with the doctrine of justification, the doctrine of sanctification. The doctrine of justification is, is basically how God made us right, and sanctification is just basically how we continue to live for him. I think a lot of us are basing our justification on our sanctification. In other words, how I tend to be living will determine how I feel securely loved by him, which is completely the opposite of what it's supposed to be. I base how I live, good or bad, on the rock-solid reality that I am loved by the Father and evidenced by the justification by faith of the work of Christ. And so whether or not I'm performing well or not, I don't judge myself or give myself a pass on that. I just look back to the cross. And what that does is it eliminates pride and fear, and it brings about simultaneously boldness because I'm loved. Look what he did. And it brings about humility Because I'm loved. I'm loved. And look what he did. That's the amazing reality of the gospel. That's not apparently there in 2 Samuel 3. So when you try and go home and find that later, you may not see it. Because we're seeing these truths lived out in the complexity of of people's lives throughout history. And so, um, yeah. So when you come up to me later and say, where did you find that thing in this verse? We're going to have to have a whole conversation. But friends, this is a lesson in Old Testament theology. That's how you read the Old Testament. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Lord, we thank you for the gospel. The gospel that is from Genesis to Revelation. The gospel that tries to teach us it's not our performance. We could not ever perform well enough to merit such great love and mercy and grace that you've given to us so freely because of your generosity. It's about just receiving it because you're good and faithful. But at the same time, Father, how could we so unworthy beings receive a love for such a great and glorious and beautiful God, and not be just wrecked, not just want to live our lives in a way that pleases you and brings you joy. Lord, help us. That tension is one of sin's effects, that we cannot believe the gospel because it's too good to be true. But Lord, every day you remind us, and every week you let us gather to be reminded of these rock-solid truths. And the world needs that. So, Lord, I pray as we've gathered, as we've worshiped, as we've heard your word proclaimed, our hearts are stirred, that we might bring these truths to a world that just is in chaos and confusion. Redeem us continually. Refine us. Make us like Christ, not for our own sake, but for the, your glory and the good of the world. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.